0: Hello and welcome to the What The Heck podcast, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, then look at the theories surrounding it. I won't give you any answers because I don't know them myself. I'll just give you what you need to decide for yourself. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. The episode this week is a true crime episode. This week, we're looking at one of the most infamous serial killers of all time. This killer has never been caught, and has baffled true crime sleuths for decades. This week, we're looking at the Zodiac Killer. As you'd expect, this one is murder heavy, and I will be talking about how people were killed. If that's going to upset you, just mark it as played and skip this one. In July 1969, a deadly killer was made known to the public. Their killings were in the spotlight well into the 1970s and nobody has ever been able to figure out who the killer was. Even though they were made public in 1969, their legacy begins before then. Before we get to the known victims, we have to go a little further back. There are two possible victims of the Zodiac Killer. And rather than leave them out, I'm going to go through them so that all of the information is shared. The first possible victim was murdered in April 1962. Raymond Davis lived in Oceanside, California, after becoming estranged from his wife. He drove cabs for the Checker Cab Company and on April 10, 1962, he picked up a passenger from a cab stand downtown. He notified the dispatcher that the destination was in South Oceanside. That was the last contact anyone had with Raymond. Early the next morning, his body was discovered in the St. Malo neighbourhood, an exclusive and upscale part of the city. He had been shot twice from the back seat of the cab, once in the back and once in the head. His body had been dumped in an alleyway, and the killer had used the cab to attempt to escape, eventually dumping that close by. The reason this murder is a potential Zodiac victim is due to a phone call that the police received before the murder, telling them that it was going to happen. After the murder took place, they received a second phone call, saying that a bus would be attacked next. The murder shows some similarities to the other killings, and could have been either the first case or the case that caused the Zodiac Killer to use his specific methods. The next and final possible victim was murdered in October 1966. Cherie Jo Bates had recently graduated high school and lived in Riverside City. On October 30th, Cherie visited the library at her college, At some point afterwards, she was attacked. Her body was found in an alley on the college's campus and her car was only 100 yards away. She had been stabbed multiple times and also beaten. At the scene, a Timex watch was found, with the wristband suggesting that the culprit had a 7-inch wrist. The watch was eventually traced to a military post, possibly in England. There was also a heel print, suggested to be from military boots, of a boot-sized 8 to 10. The watch stopped at 12.24, but that doesn't indicate an exact timing for the murder. A confession letter was mailed anonymously from Riverside a month later, addressed to the Riverside Police Department and the Riverside Press Enterprise newspaper, detailing things that had never been released by the police. The month after that, a desk was discovered in the library that had a morbid poem scratched into it. Eventually, this was attributed to the Zodiac Killer. Another letter was sent out in April 1967 to the police and the paper, but this time Cherie's father received one as well. All of the letters were eventually attributed to the Zodiac Killer. This murder wasn't actually considered to be a Zodiac killing until 1969, when another murder took place that was similar to this one. That's the last of the potential murders. From this point, we're looking at murders that were definitely attributed to the Zodiac killer. The known attacks begin at the end of 1968. David Faraday, aged 17, and Betty Lou Jensen, aged 16, were parked in a gravel parking area near Lake Herman Road in Vallejo. While they were parked there, someone approached the car. It was around 11.15pm. According to the police report, shots were fired into the car in an attempt to get the victims to flee the car. Betty exited the vehicle using the passenger door and David attempted to exit the car through the driver's door. He was shot in the head as he exited the vehicle. Betty was attempting to flee her attacker when she was shot in the back five times. Neither survived. The crime scene was discovered by a local resident, and both Betty's and David's parents were questioned about the deaths. None of the parents could explain why the pair had been killed. This case specifically is believed to be a Zodiac killing, but some people have speculated that the Zodiac Killer wasn't actually responsible due to a lack of taunting letters or phone calls that accompanied later deaths. The next attacks weren't until July 1969. Darlene Ferrin, 22, and Mike McGough, 19, had parked at a secluded spot at Blue Rock Springs Park near Vallejo to talk. Darlene was married and worked at a restaurant and how the pair knew each other is unknown. A car pulled into the parking lot a few feet away, and a man with a flashlight got out and began to walk towards them. Thinking it was a police officer, the pair had their identification ready just in case. With no warning, the man opened fire on the car, shooting five times before walking back to his. When Mike cried out in pain, the man came back and fired two more shots into each victim. After 45 minutes, the Vallejo Police Department received a phone call from a man who claimed to be responsible for the attack. He correctly identified the weapon used and took credit for the attack on David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen months earlier. Mike survived the attack, but Darlene succumbed to her injuries. Her husband, Dean, was considered a suspect to begin with, but was cleared when it was discovered that he was working at the time. Darlene's first husband, James Crabtree, was also a suspect briefly, but was cleared of the crime. On July 31st, letters were sent to three newspapers claiming to be from the killer. The letters included details only the culprit could have known. Each letter contained a third of a cipher that would supposedly reveal who the killer was if it was solved. At this point, the killer wasn't referred to as Zodiac, but it did mark the beginning of the letter writing that frustrated investigators during the attacks. Five days after the initial letters, another letter was sent to the San Francisco Examiner, where the killer identified himself as the Zodiac, cementing his name forever. Four days after that, the original cipher was cracked by Donald and Betty Harden. They produced a statement from the Zodiac that described how much joy he took from killing people. In the September of that year, Cecilia Shepard, 22, and Brian Hartnell, 20, were relaxing on a blanket on the shoreline of Lake Berryessa near Napa, California. A man taller than six foot with a heavy build approached them wearing an unusual costume and holding a gun. He claimed he was a prison escapee from either Montana or Colorado and needed money and a car so he could flee to Mexico. Brian offered the man his wallet and car keys, which weren't taken from him. The three of them continued to talk for a few minutes before the man tied Brian and Cecilia together with a plastic clothesline and began to stab them with a knife that he'd brought with him. Brian was stabbed six times in the back, and Cecilia was stabbed five times in the back and five times in the front. After the attack, the man walked away from the scene as if nothing had happened. It didn't take long for a nearby fisherman to hear them screaming and alert park rangers. By the time they arrived at the scene, Brian and Cecilia had managed to untie themselves. It took an hour for the ambulance to appear, by which time they were both in critical condition. Around an hour after the attack, the Napa Police Department received a call claiming responsibility for the attack. The call was traced to a phone booth downtown and fingerprints were later recovered. The County Sheriff Department were making their way to the crime scene. They found that a message had been left on Brian's car door giving the dates of the two previous attacks, signed with a cross symbol surrounded by a circle. Tire tracks and shoe prints were lifted from the scene, with the shoe prints suggesting that the culprit was more than £200. Three women had noticed a strange man at the scene a couple of hours before the attack, but couldn't give any more information. Cecilia Shepherd died within 48 hours of the attack and her funeral attracted a huge crowd. Brian Hartnell survived and recovered from the attacks. He gave many interviews in the first few years after the attacks, but has no interest in discussing the case with the media. Several suspects were looked at, including Ted Bundy. A fingerprint comparison in 1989 cleared him of the attacks, though. In November of 1969, Paul Stein's cab was hailed on the intersection of Mason and Geary in San Francisco. The destination for the cab was Washington and Cherry, only a block away. On the northeast corner of the street, Paul, who was 29, was shot in the back of the head. Three witnesses watched the suspect as he wiped down the cab with a cloth while they were in their house around 60 feet away. They described him as a white male, mid to late twenties, around 5 foot 9 with a stocky build and reddish brown hair in a crew cut. They said he was wearing dark clothes and had heavy rimmed glasses on. When the police arrived at the scene, they found Paul in the cab, with a large portion of his shirt carefully torn off. Bloody fingerprints were recovered from the vehicle, and a pair of size 7 black leather gloves. Paul's wallet and keys were also missing. When the police dispatcher passed the description across to the police in the area, they made a mistake and described the killer as a black male adult. As a result, when a white man was spotted walking east nearby, patrol officers Donald Folk and Eric Zelms didn't stop him. When the description was corrected, the patrol officers realised what they'd done And set out to search the area. They didn't find anything, but they did get a good look at the man. They said he was white, aged 35 to 45, and around five foot ten. He was between 180 and 200 pounds, barrel chested, and a light coloured crew cut and a pair of glasses. He wasn't carrying anything and didn't talk to the officers. The murder was initially believed to just be an attack on a cabbie and unrelated to the Zodiac. But on October 13, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter from him containing a portion of a bloody shirt and taking credit for the murder. The shirt belonged to Paul. Later on, Zodiac would claim to have spoken to the patrol officers that night, which contradicts what the officers had said. The witnesses also worked with a sketch artist to create a composite sketch of the killer. A few days after the wanted posters of the sketch were circulated, the witnesses requested to change the sketch to make it more accurate. In November, Donald Folk came forward with his description of the suspect. A fourth cipher was also sent to the San Francisco Chronicle. This one was 340 symbols long. Other letters would continue to be sent until the late 1970s, all from the killer, but there were no confirmed killings after 1969. For years, the Zodiac fascinated people. The first time anyone produced any media about him was in 1971, when Tom Hansen released the low-budget film The Zodiac Killer. Another movie released in 1971 was based on The Zodiac Killer as well. Dirty Harry, starring Clint Eastwood. The first book about it was released in 1977. Written by Cliff Smith Jr., The Zodiac Killer, still at large, was followed by The Zodiac Killer. Written by Jerry Weissman and published in 1979. In 1986... Robert Graysmith published a book called Zodiac. Then, in 1990, The Exorcist III released. It was based on William Peter Blatty's novel Legion from 1983, and involved a killer known as the Gemini Killer, who was based on the Zodiac. In 1991, Mike McGough was brought in front of a lineup by the Vallejo Police Department. He identified a man named Arthur Lee Allen as the shooter. When he was asked why he hadn't identified him in the years since the attack, he told police that he had never been shown photos of the suspect, only been given names, and asked if he recognised them. If that's true, then it could have been one of the biggest police blunders of the 20th century. Unfortunately, we don't have any proof of it, so we won't know. In 1996, Robert Graysmith's book was used as the basis for the HBO TV film, The Limbic Region. Then in 1999, a documentary was released called Case Reopened, The Zodiac with Lawrence Block. In this, Block gave an overview of the case, including interviews with Robert Graysmith and the creator of ZodiacKiller.com, Tom Voigt also in 1999 ultimate 10 ran an episode about the zodiac and the history channel docuseries called perfect crimes did the same cold case files also examined the zodiac case that year disguised killer released in 2000 a short film based on the lake herman road attack on betty and david in 1968 three films were released in 2005 The Zodiac Killer was directed by Charles Edelman. The Zodiac was directed by Alexander Bulkley and was about a real-life detective in Vallejo who was obsessed with the case. And Zodiac Killer was directed by Uli Lommel and was about a game of cat and mouse between the original Zodiac and a copycat killer. The 2005 films renewed interest in The Zodiac America's Most Wanted released a feature episode on the Zodiac in February 2007. A month later, the movie Zodiac released, starring Jake Gyllenhaal as an investigator on the hunt for the killer. It recounts the events of the killings truthfully in its runtime, and ends with the investigator looking insane after the mental toll the case takes on him. The next time he was seen on screen was in 2011, ...during the Halloween episode of American Horror Story Hotel. Here he is seen with many other serial killers from the 20th century. His crimes had been alluded to the year before... ...during the freak show season... ...when Twisty the Clown went on a murder spree... ...killing a couple having a picnic near a lake. At the end of 2020... ...51 years after the fourth cipher was received... The FBI said that a group of codebreakers had solved it. David Oranchak, Sam Blake and Jarl van Eyck decided to try and crack it because they thought it would be a challenge. They used computer software to help them do it. They revealed fragments of the messages, which revealed how they could transpose the cipher. It turns out that the message wasn't a single block of text but instead was broken into three smaller blocks. Two sets of nine lines and one set of two lines. Using this new information, they translated the cipher. It said, I hope you are having lots of fun trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber, because it will send me to paradise all the sooner. Because I now have enough slaves to work for me. Where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. So they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life is. Life will be an easy one in paradise death. Orange said that the second line stood out to him. Because the cypher was received on November 8th, 1969 which was about two weeks after someone had phoned into a talk show hosted by Jim Dunbar claiming to be the killer. What's surprising in this is that the word paradise is spelled incorrectly with a C instead of an S. The translation was handed to the FBI, who confirmed it. They didn't give any new information out of respect to the victims and their families, but they did say that the San Francisco division of the FBI was still investigating the case. The Zodiac killed five people and injured two between 1968 and 1969, and maybe two more before that. His identity remains unknown today. The Zodiac is one of the most unknown killers of the 20th century, and fascinates true crime junkies. But who was he? We have a real doozy today, because this is probably the biggest unsolved case in the last 100 years. There are several potential culprits to this case. Over the years, these culprits have changed, but most of them haven't been cleared of the crime at all. Let's jump in and I'll stop wasting time. The first suspect is Gary Francis post. The key to this is the letters that the Zodiac sent to the media. They claim that the Zodiac killer had a total of 37 murders, but we only have five definite and two injured people. A group of cold case investigators known as the Case Breakers believe that the missing victims are the key to the culprit. They say that the Zodiac killer is Gary Post. Their trail begins with Cherie Jo Bates, who was the second unofficial victim. Her death is very similar to the attack on David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, who were both stabbed several times. The codebreakers say that the police sketches of the Zodiac look like Post. They also suggest that Post is named in the ciphers if you remove a series of letters from it. It's quite a reach, but one of the letters did say that the ciphers, once solved, would reveal the name. Post died in 2018 and was never cleared of the crimes. The San Francisco Chronicle says that there's only one suspect. They believe it was Arthur Lee Allen. The same man that Mike McGough picked out of a lineup. Alan was a former teacher with a criminal record for child molestation. He connected to the Zodiac in several ways. Alan wore the same shoes as the killer, with a distinctive tread. At least one of Alan's friends said that he had confessed to them as well. What makes matters worse is that Alan only took one sick day as a teacher, the day that Cherie Jo Bates was murdered. Thought Catalogue compared what was known about Alan to serial killer profiles that the FBI agent John Douglas built. They found that there was a lot there. Alan was dishonorably discharged from the Navy, reportedly abused animals, and told a friend that he had fantasised about killing random couples. Alan had made it no secret what his favourite book was either. The most dangerous game is a novel about a hunter who decides to hunt humans instead of animals. The name of the book crops up in one of Zodiac's ciphers. Alan was never charged. His handwriting was tested and found to not be a match to the letters, and law enforcement never managed to make a case strong enough to charge him with anything. Alan died of a heart attack in 1992. In the early 70s, a man walked into the office of San Francisco attorney Robert Tarbox. The man confessed to being the Zodiac. Tarbox was a maritime lawyer and the man confessing was a merchant marine. The marine told Tarbox that he wanted to stop killing and Tarbox said that the descriptions of the murders weren't detailed but were comprehensive enough that he had no doubt that he had spoken to the Zodiac killer. Tarbox said nothing for a number of years, citing attorney-client privileges. In 2007, the film Zodiac named Arthur Lee Allen as the killer, and Tarbox said that it was wrong, telling all but the Marine's name. Law enforcement says that this is entirely possible, acknowledging that Allen wasn't a perfect suspect. Robert Graysmith also supported this claim. One of Graysmith's first theories was that the killer was a merchant seaman, so Tarbox wasn't even the first to mention something like that. Next, we have Earl Van Best Jr. The FX true crime series, The Most Dangerous Animal of All, was based on a book of a very similar name. The Most Dangerous Animal of All, Searching for My Father and Finding the Zodiac Killer, written by Susan Mustafa. The book follows Gary Stewart in his search for Earl Van Best Jr who had gotten Stewart's mother pregnant when she was 14 and then abandoned the child in an apartment building stairwell. The book claimed that he hadn't just found his father but also found a serial killer. He had evidence including sketches, handwriting and partial DNA that appeared to match. Mustafa believed the claims herself. Enter the director of the series, Keith Davidson, and the executive producer, Ross Dinerstein, who had done their own investigation. Using what they had found, they disproved all of Stewart's claims. After that, they had to figure out what to do with this information. They chose to follow Stewart's journey to find his father, eventually telling him what they'd learned. The biggest thing they found was that Van Best Jr. was in Europe at the time of the confirmed killings, so he couldn't have done it. They allowed Stewart to see the finished series ahead of release, including all of the debunking. Stewart took it well, saying that he loved it, confusing the producers, especially considering the claims he had made in the book. Fox News aired a strange claim in 2009. A California woman, Deborah Perez, claimed that her father, Guy Ward Hendrickson, was the Zodiac Killer. There were some crazy reasons as well. She said that she was the one who wrote the letters that had been sent, and she embroidered the hood that he supposedly wore. Perez was seven at the time, and had no choice but to go along with Hendrickson during the attacks. He had told her that he was sick, and she said that she just wanted to help him. Attorney Kevin McLean conducted a two-year investigation into the claims, including having Perez submitted to a psychiatric evaluation. He believed there was something to it, but some disagreed, including Perez's stepsister, Janice Hendrickson. She publicly condemned the idea, and said that if the evidence proved it was her father, she would apologise but made it clear that she would sue for defamation if that wasn't the case. Hendrickson died in 1983, and police later said that Perez's evidence didn't pan out, and the most important piece of evidence, the glasses that belonged to Paul Stein, weren't legitimate, or even really proof at all. The name Ross Sullivan appears in online forums more than official investigations, But that's likely not surprising, since investigations are ongoing. He features in the History Channel's The Hunt for the Zodiac Killer, which connects him to the murders through Cherie Jo Bates. Sullivan was a student at the Riverside City College at the same time as she was killed, and he worked at the library, the same place she'd been the day that she died. He was described as the kind of person who makes others uncomfortable, and was known to constantly wear military boots, the same kind of boots that were connected to prints found at the site that Bates' body was found, as well as the Lake Berryessa crime scene. Sullivan was also a student of cryptology, which theorizers say would have been handy to him if he were writing the ciphers that confused law enforcement and codebreakers for decades after they were sent. He also fits the physical description of the killer, and was diagnosed as schizophrenic and had bipolar disorder. One of the most damning pieces of evidence here is that Sullivan moved into the Zodiac's hunting grounds just before the murders started. Nobody really knows what happened to Sullivan, but it's believed he died in 1977. Tom Voigt, the creator of ZodiacKiller.com was interviewed once about who he believes is the top suspect in the case. Voigt said it was a man named Richard Joseph Gikowski, an ex-army medic from South Dakota. He moved to California in 1963. In 1971, his co-workers had him committed to the Napa State Mental Hospital, where he was treated for three years. Gikowski was working as a journalist and editor in the area where the killings took place and had appeared in the circle of one of the victims. Darlene Ferrin. Ferrin's ex-husband had moved them across the country to Albany, New York. Gaikowski had followed them, working at a rival newspaper to Richard. Mike McGough, the survivor of the attack on Darlene, said that a man named Richard had been stalking her. Gaikowski's voice was also recognised by a police dispatcher. When they heard his voice they said that it was the same voice that they had heard in 1969 when the Zodiac called to tell them about an attack. Voigt said that he had been tipped off about Gikowski by one of his former co-workers. This same co-worker had gone into the police in 1980 with the same information. The co-worker was transgender and said that because of that they were never taken seriously by the police. After coming out of the hospital, Gajkowski ran a movie theatre for a time, eventually dying in 2004. In more recent times, a crazy theory has been suggested by Steve Hodell, an ex-policeman for the LAPD. He said that after his father died, he was going through some of his belongings and found some evidence. He said that his father had been the culprit in the Black Dahlia murder in 1947 something I covered in episode 35. If this is true, then Hodel believes that to be the beginning of the Zodiac killings. Steve said that his father, George Hodel, had removed the family back from the Philippines around the same time that the Zodiac killings began. Steve even argues that the profile of the killer matches his father well enough that it can't be coincidental. Others aren't quite convinced, with people at the Daily Mirror trying to debunk him, stating that the shoe size of George Hodell wasn't even a close match to the shoe size of the killer. If I say Ted Kaczynski, true crime buffs will think of the Unabomber, because that's who he is. But what if I told you that he's a suspect for the Zodiac killings? When he was still a suspect as the Unabomber, Tips flooded into San Francisco law enforcement and the San Francisco Chronicle. People were sure that he was the Zodiac. He was living in San Francisco at the correct time, loved to send bragging letters about what he'd done and possibly the strangest thing. He'd signed a yearbook once with a symbol that looked similar to the Zodiac symbol. Kevin Fagan of the San Francisco Chronicle A reporter who had been covering the Zodiac case the longest believes this idea to be preposterous. But Mark Hewitt, author of the book Zodiologist, believes that the evidence points to him. For example, Kaczynski's favourite book, Joseph Conrad's Secret Agent, uses the codename Zodiac, which Hewitt doesn't believe is a coincidence. Kaczynski is still in Colorado's Supermax prison, serving time for his unabomber killings. In 2021, it was reported that a man named Fikul Zerui had solved some of the Zodiac's unsolved ciphers. He was condemned by online codebreaker communities who didn't believe him, possibly because they didn't want the game to end after someone came in and solved all the ciphers in two weeks. The ciphers contained coordinates for one of the crime scenes and a passage that read "My name is. That's the important part. The encryption code gave Fekel the name KAYR, which he connected to a man named Lawrence K, who had been a suspect at one point. Kay, who also went by the name Lawrence Kane, had been on the radar as a suspect at one point. Detective Harvey Hines had pushed him as a suspect but had ultimately been overlooked. He was connected to a 1970 kidnapping and worked in the same place as one of the victims, but was never officially a suspect. When Feichel posted about Kay in an online forum, the post was deleted, showing that nobody really thinks that Kay is a suspect. In 2008, Dennis Kaufman told CBS news anchor chris Pickell that the zodiac killer was his stepfather jack terence he said that he had spent eight years collecting evidence and argued that composite sketches and handwriting samples matched the killer he also said that he had found a bloody knife in terence's belongings along with gruesome images on some camera film a black hood with the famous zodiac symbol on it and what kaufman believes to be a confession if Kaufman's theory is correct, then the Zodiac killer escaped justice. Terence died in 2006. DNA testing done after Kaufman's claims were inconclusive and many believe that Terence can't be the Zodiac, with Kaufman's claim being widely discredited. Robert Graysmith had an hour-long phone call from an informant. The caller claimed that a man named Bob Vaughan had evidence that Rick Marshall had collected and stored in film canisters. Graysmith did some digging into Marshall, but never found the evidence. ZodiacKiller.com still lists Marshall as a suspect, and Marshall reached out to them. He had come under suspicion after some odd comments he made over a ham radio were overheard but he emailed the website in 2001 to correct them. He claimed that all of the information had come in as fifth or sixth hand and that he had never lived in a warehouse in Marin. He'd simply leased an industrial property. Marshall threatened legal action and didn't respond to any further attempts to contact him. In 2008, a nurse in the home that Marshall was living in suggested that he may be ready to talk. No DNA tests were performed, and detectives concluded that he wasn't the Zodiac killer at all. Marshall died the same year. Those are all the suspects in the case. It's been ongoing for 50 years, with no concrete answers. Will we ever know who the Zodiac was? I don't know, but lots of people think they do. The story from this episode came from a San Francisco Examiner article called A Look at the Zodiac Killer's Deadly Timeline. A New York Times article called 51 Years Later, Coded Message Attributed to Zodiac Killer Has Been Solved, FBI Says. An IFL Science article called FBI Confirmed Zodiac Killer's Cipher Has Been Decoded and His Message Finally Revealed a Crime and Investigation article about the Zodiac Killer, and ZodiacKiller.com. The theories from this episode came from ZodiacKiller.com and a grunge article called Every Big Suspect Accused of Being the Zodiac Killer. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Social media links are available using the link in the episode description, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and still plan to post short pieces of episodes on TikTok as well as putting the episodes on YouTube and I'm in the process of planning that now that I have a little more time. I have a Patreon but I'm still deciding what to post on it this season. There's a £3 tier if you want to support me anyway. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and as before you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do My email address is also in the episode description if you want to send me spooky stories, unexplained events, or even mysteries you want me to look at. If I get enough, I'll set up some listener episodes to read them. Please don't hesitate to email me if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said either. Once I've seen the email, I'll make sure to correct myself. This week's Creature feature will be out on Saturday, and next week's episode will be out on Wednesday, February 1st. So hold on until then.